Welcome to the weekend message from Mariner's Church Mission Viejo Campus. Whether you're listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. All right, everybody, if you have a Bible, let's go to Genesis chapter 1. This morning we are starting a new series called Consumed. We're going to be spending three weeks on, for those of you keeping score at home, uh, we want to spend three weeks reminding ourselves that the American dream doesn't represent uh, God's dream for his people. And we want to recognize that uh, the United States consists of 5% of the world's population, and we consume 40% of the world's resources. And 70% of that 40% is consumed between now and Christmas. And we just want to say, yep, although the world has decided to celebrate the baby Jesus uh, by just gobbling up more and more and more, God's people recognize there's a much more profound thing going on that we want to talk about. And so um, we are really glad that you're with us. We're going to go through the scriptures like crazy this morning. So if you don't have a Bible, feel free to track with us along on the screens. D, go ahead and fire up the PowerPoint. I want you to see how much time I put in the background on this thing right here. It's pretty good. Now, we, the American dream can be fined two different ways. Let's go with little letter A to start. The idea that ever-increasing levels of health, wealth, and liberty will produce ever-increasing levels of personal happiness and fulfillment. And do you know, uh, as researchers are looking at the last several decades, they see that the opposite is just true. That, that uh, baby boomers, particularly that generation, uh, have increased lifespans and double the amount of leisure income and, and uh, leisure time and the health uh, benefits and the healthcare system. I mean, it's just increased like gigantically over the generation before them. But rates of depression are 10 times higher. Rates of suicide are higher. Anxiety, higher. Uh, mental illness, higher. There's just been this weird thing that as we grow more prosperous as a people, we grow more miserable by any stretch of the imagination. And it is not Christian folks who are drawing these conclusions. It is research done by whatever measure of happiness you want to use. And it's just a staggering thing because our initial uh, our initial impulse is to say, no, 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 no. I mean, when you have more, you're happier. And we just recognize, well, if you're dirt poor and you can't feed your children, yes, that's true. But there comes a point that more and more stuff doesn't equal more and more satisfaction and meaning and purpose in life. And we just want to remind ourselves that this whole conversation about the American dream, are we for hard work? Yep. Are we for individual initiative? Absolutely. But is the goal of life material prosperity? And we just want to stand against it and say no. Second definition of the American dream. Letter B, the ideal according to which equality of opportunity permits any American to aspire to high attainment and material success. Hallelujah for all of that stuff. We are all for equal opportunity. We're all for hard work. But again, we just want to confront ourselves with the reality that the kingdom of God works in an entirely different way. Way And instead of using uh, this as an excuse to just consume more and more and more, we want to use it to take three journeys. Um, go ahead, D. next slide. We want to journey this week from entitlement to gratitude, next week from self-sufficiency to dependence, and then the week after we want to take 
a journey from consumerism to generosity. And so this isn't just an issue of money. This is an issue of how we see ourselves in the world and how it is that we see what the good life is and represents. We are going to start in Genesis chapter 1. You guys okay? Okay, great. That was underwhelming in all kinds of ways. Genesis chapter 1. My name is Mike. We're glad that you're with us. I'm in a great mood. And the, and the struggle I will have over the next 40 minutes is not being... I will have to stay focused because we have a lot to get through and I just want to hang out. I just want to hang out and I want to talk football and Thanksgiving. Isn't this the time for awkward family conversations? Isn't this the time for getting more into debt? Yay, debt brought on the recession, so let's spend our way out. Hallelujah. So we just want, we just want to remind ourselves of what is right and good and true. And so Genesis chapter 1, you guys know this. In the beginning, verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. Six times throughout this poem, every, after every day God creates, it is good, it is good, it is good. And I'll tell you, I'll give you a secret. The Hebrew word for good here means good. God delights in what he had made. In fact, when you read the book of Job, right at the end of the book of Job, uh, God kind of reveals himself to this, uh, this character, Job, and he starts saying things like, have you, have you considered the ostrich? Have you looked at the wild donkey? And he lists all these animals he's really stoked on. And it's just amazing because God, it's like you watch a Discovery Channel show and they're doing all of these creatures that no one's ever seen or enjoyed for thousands of years. And you realize, oh no, there's been somebody who's been enjoying them, right? There's been somebody who says, this is good. The Bible, contrary to popular belief, does not start with sin and evil, with corruption and death. It starts with a good God who creates an embodied flesh and blood kind of world and says it's good. In fact, in verse 31 of the same chapter, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. So the Bible starts with the declaration that being created is a great thing. It's just the way God intended it. Now, God creates the world and then he creates people to inhabit it. Go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. Now, here's what's interesting. The word for ground is Adama. The man's name is what? Adam or Adam. So, the man is named in his, from his relationship to the ground. So Adam is formed from Adama. In Hebrew, the idea is Adam means the man of dirt or mud being or dirt bag, if you would like, or you know, whatever. It's just kind of an interesting sort of thing. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, in Hebrew, the word for breath and the word for spirit are very similar words. Here's the idea that the man is the union of the physical and the spiritual. That human beings are where spiritual and physical kind of intermingle and dwell in each other. So God, so God creates a man from dirt, earth, soil, and he breathes his breath into the man and into the woman. And the idea is the man now is a spiritual being. In the Hebrew scriptures, 
Never is there a distinction between the sacred and the secular, the spiritual and the unspiritual. Because God's world is good and because the man and the woman are spiritual beings in God's good world, not once in the entire Bible do they talk about something as spiritual versus something that's unspiritual. In the Bible, how you spend your money is a spiritual issue. How you treat people is a spiritual issue. The words you use, a spiritual issue. Everything about created human life is a spiritual issue. We in American Christianity often talk about sacred vocations and secular vocations. Why well, just have a secular job? I'm in the business world. To the Bible, the authors of the Bible would look at that and go, that is false, completely false. Complete. People will say, hey, how, what's it like being in ministry? And the response is, well, I don't know you. You tell me. Because you are a spiritual being in God's good world, whether you're a student or a mom or an accountant or a dad or a mortgage broker or a pastor, the whole thing is sacred. The whole thing in God's economy, God says, is good. Now, it's tarnished and it's fallen and there's sin that infects all of it. But you have to understand the posture of the Bible begins by saying there aren't these pockets of things that God worries about as opposed to something that God doesn't worry about over here. It's not like there are spiritual things over here and unspiritual things over here. In fact, in the Hebrew language, there's no word for spiritual because everything just is. So when American Christians will say um, things like, hey, I had my time with God this morning. Have you ever heard that language? Well, thank you. It's amazing. People are here and they're listening. If you say, I have my time with God, somebody, somebody uh, like in the first century would have looked at you and said, when are you not having time with God exactly? Like, like, like when somebody says, well, let's, let's enter into God's presence. We're here. I mean, it's like saying, I'm going to have time with air this morning. I'm going to spend some time focusing on air. Well, the natural response would be, A, what in the world are you on? And B, when are you not having time with air? See, the, the Hebrew scriptures present us with this holistic, overarching worldview that says everything is good, everything is spiritual. So God creates Adam and he creates Eve. And he places them in a garden called Eden. The word Eden means delight. So how's, how'd you like that for your address? Where do you live? Delight. They are naked and unashamed, commanded to be fruitful and multiply. And God made being fruitful and multiplying very fun. Married folks, would you agree? Right? I mean, of all the ways God could have us reproduce, he could have, we could have gardened, we could have been farmers, but he decided to make this really, really fun. And so the whole Bible begins with intimacy and delight and joy and worship and trust. No guilt, no fear, no calories, no nothing. <laughs> they had one rule. Go to chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. 
Okay, so you can eat anything. You can do anything. There's no sin. There's just one rule. Don't eat of the fruit of that tree. Now go to Genesis chapter 3. What do you think happens when they get tempted? What's the one thing their attention gets drawn to? The one rule they have, right? So chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Provoking her to focus on the one rule. The woman said, we may eat fruit from any of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it. Now that part God didn't say, or we will die. Now here's what's fascinating. You live in a garden full of yeses. Yes, reproduce and multiply. Yes, work and find meaningful vocation. Yes, enjoy me without guilt, shame, fear, death. Yes, be intimate with each other emotionally, physically, spiritually. Yes, enjoy everything I've made in my good world. You're a spiritual being. Enjoy it. It's all yours. But there's one no. Right? Don't eat, don't eat the fruit of that tree. That's it. You've got a whole world of yes, but there's one no. So what does the tempter do? Focus on the one thing they can't have. Right? In a garden full of yes. Let's consider the no. That's immediately what he does. I'm glad that doesn't happen today. Right? I'm glad that doesn't work today. We're too smart for this trick. Go, if you would, to the book of Numbers. Flip over to the book of Numbers. Would you agree that, that freedom is better than slavery? Would you agree that keeping your firstborn children instead of having them murdered, that's a better state of affairs, keeping them than having them murdered. Would you agree? Would you agree having a day off to celebrate and worship your God is better than breaking your back for seven days a week for a false leader and a false man of God, supposedly? Would you agree with that? Okay, no, uh, Numbers. Chapter 11, those silly Israelites. It has always been the temptation of the people of God. Numbers chapter 11. It's always been the temptation of the people of God to focus on what they do not have instead of what they have. So, this is just one of those passages that blows my mind. Numbers chapter 11, verse 4. The rabble with the Israelites began to crave other food because up until this point, God was feeding them bread every morning miraculously that would appear on the ground, and it was called manna. And that the, the word means, what is it? Because it would just show up, and people would go, what is that? And then you realize you could eat it. But that was all that God was providing. You, you had to have manna stew and manna pie and like manna sandwiches. And I mean, like, like you're in the middle of the desert. God is miraculously feeding you, and here's kind of what happens. The rabble began to crave other food. And the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Never mind you were enslaved and your children were being put to death. Also, do you remember the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic? But now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Okay, okay, so let me get this straight. God has delivered you from slavery. You've been enslaved for over... 400 years. You're so numerous that Pharaoh is now putting to death sons. You break your back, people will be born, and they will die without ever tasting freedom or Sabbath. They'll never know their true God because they're surrounded by false gods. 
God delivers them through ten miraculous displays of power. He parts the Red Sea, crushing their enemies behind them. They are literally walking out with all the loot and the riches of Egypt. God is promising to take them to a land of milk and honey, which, by the way, is good. And he will be their God and they will be his people. It sounds like a pretty good deal. They're out in the middle of the desert and they're like, man, I miss garlic. Don't you? I mean, this, this bread that just magically appears. This is so boring. I admit, do remember the meat we had in Egypt. And you're going, really? Really? It has always been the temptation of the people of God to focus on what they lack instead of what they have. Would you agree? And I mean, we could take the next half hour and go through example after example. That is the root of all temptation everywhere. Temptation only becomes temptation when you focus on what you don't have rather than what you do have. It's very simple. How does advertising work? What's advertising do? Focus you on what you don't have. Would you agree? All right, so the enemy now has a marketing department. Genesis 1, a garden full of yes, but there's one no. What's the tempter do? Focus on the no. The people of God delivered out of slavery, but we don't have meat. So we focus on the meat. Single people, you could have a world full of God's blessings, rich friendships, the abundant life Jesus has come to offer you. You could be financially secure and one rule, do not have sex outside of marriage. And what is it you're going to focus on? The one rule. God's so unfair. Married people, you've grown through life with the wife or husband of your youth. Right? You've had, it's been 15, 20 years. Maybe you've had some kids. What's the tempter start saying? You mean this is the only person I'll ever see naked again? Right? I mean, couldn't, couldn't we trade this person in for a younger version? I mean, it's ridiculous. It doesn't matter where you are in life. You will always be invited to focus on what you lack instead of what you have. So the Bible begins with this epic God offering a world full of enjoyment and with small, petty human beings saying, well, yeah, 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 I mean, I have all of that, but I can't have that. I want that. And isn't that what we choose to focus on? And so we enter into a season of, of life, or a season of our world, where literally what's celebrated right now is what you don't have, because you need it. And we just want to be people who remind ourselves of the bigger story, because God's people have always been tempted to focus on what they lack instead of what they have. So God commands them to party. Go to the book of Leviticus. The big, scary book of Leviticus, chapter 23. Bless you. Bless you. One more? Just two? One more? It's coming? Okay. Leviticus. Let's go to chapter 23. I love this. You should read the book of Leviticus sometime. It's scary, but there's some really profound things. Verse 23, or chapter 23, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, These are my appointed feasts 
the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you were to proclaim as sacred assemblies. The rest of Leviticus 23 is a festival calendar. Now, you have to understand, when churches hold parties, it's like in the fellowship hall, and it's potluck, okay? When Jews throw parties, it's days and days of dancing and singing and drinking and eating and feasting and celebrating. As a commandment, God told his people, one day a week you're to take off and to celebrate me. There are seven different festivals you're to celebrate. And most of those were multi-day festivals. And he was so serious about his people not working on those days, he instituted the death penalty. So literally, it was, you will, you will party or you will die. <laughs> literally. For instance, the festival of Sukkot in the fall, you would, um, it would be eight days long. You could do no work. You were to live outside in these little booths, and you were to celebrate God's deliverance of you out of Egypt in the wilderness journeys. And what you would do is eat, sing, dance, clap. I mean, that's all you were. The commandment of God is that you were to celebrate. Now, some of these assemblies were very somber and very reverent, absolutely. Most of them, though, were thanksgiving and fun. We just don't look at God this way. The Bible begins with, it is good. The Bible begins with, everything is spiritual and you can enjoy it. We focus on the no, so God has to institute regularly in the calendar lives of his people festivals of thanksgiving where you would do, I mean, think about American weddings. For all that we spend on American weddings, they're pretty lame. Let's just be honest. They really are. An hour at best in a nice church, a reception with chicken dance and some old steak. It's not that great. If you're married in Israel, all right, what you would do, let's say you're in a village of 200 people, what you would do is as the guy, you would wait for permission from your father to go get your bride. You'd be betrothed for about a year and you'd be adding on a room in your father's house. Jesus uses this language all over the book of John. You would then, when the father gives permission, you would then light a candle because you'd probably go in the middle of the night and you would grab all your friends. You'd wake them up, they'd all have torches, and you would be singing and dancing through the streets of your village, waking the entire village up. The young lady you were coming for would always have a lamp lit on her window, signifying her preparedness. She would hear you coming, prepare herself. The whole village would begin a minimum of three, a maximum of seven days of celebrating. No work would be done. The Bible opens our eyes to this world of a good God who created a great world to be enjoyed by spiritual beings. And he commands his people to celebrate because we're always tempted by what we don't have. So he says, take time to just celebrate what you do have. And do it right. And do it big. And do it often. Now, out of this worldview came a couple of Jewish practices that I just want to highlight real quick. They're not commanded in the Bible. But I want to show you how ingrained this way of thinking was to the Jews of Jesus' day. All right? So, D, fire it up. Something called the Amidah which was a Jewish prayer they prayed three times a day. Okay, It was uh, 18 benedictions. In fact, some think the Lord's Prayer is actually Jesus' shortened version of this. 
But what I want you to see is that you would spend three times a day thanking God and praising God for the following. Next slide. First, creative and redemptive activity in history for control over nature, promise to resurrect the dead, great, his greatness and holiness, the gifts of knowledge and understanding, delight in the repentance of his people, mercy and readiness to forgive sins, deliverance from affliction, faithfulness and healing sicknesses, provision for day-to-day needs, promise to regather his scattered people next, righteous and just kingship, punishment of enemies and humbling of the arrogant, support of the righteous, rebuild Jerusalem, send the Messiah, responsive to prayer, Promise to restore the temple. Continual mercy, generosity, protection, the gift of peace. You would spend three times a day. These are big things and these are small things. Would you agree? Like, God, send your Messiah. Big thing. God, thanks for healing sickness. Well, that's a big thing, but it's a personal thing. Or thanks for being responsive to prayer. That's a, that's a, that's a personal thing. They had this worldview where they would just three times a day stop and give thanks to God. In fact, in addition to this, they uttered something called Barakot. For those of you who are just incredibly obscure um, collectors of Jewish minutia, there is a tractate in the Mishnah where all of these are listed. And, and literally, some rabbis encouraged you a hundred times to bless God for ordinary things. So, Barakot were blessings that you would say. D, if you entered... Or, or left a house of study, there was a blessing that you would say. If you walked through a dangerous place, there was a blessing you would, you would utter. If you, if you, anytime you ate, now, to the Jews, you never blessed the food. The food's already blessed. It's a part of God, God, God's good world. Who would you bless for the food? Not the chef. I like that, though. Are you the chef in your family? So maybe you have a vested interest in being blessed after you prepare meals. Okay, I like that. Let's bless the chef. Absolutely, ladies and gentlemen, for the chefs among us. Yes, and you'd bless God. So if Jews were to sit around American dinner tables and, and we would say, hey, God, bless the food, they'd go, food's blessed. Part of God's good world. Who do you bless? You bless God for the food. Now, the word bless just means thanks. But I want you to see the Jews understood this world to be a gift. Every single ounce of it, a gift. So, when you'd eat food, you'd bless God. When you celebrated the close of the Sabbath, you'd bless God. If you're passing by the place where a miracle occurred, you'd bless God. If you're passing by a place where idolatry was uprooted, you'd bless God. If you saw a meteor, you would bless God. Or lightning, you'd bless him. Feeling the earth tremor, you'd bless him. Or wind, you'd bless him. If you heard thunder, you'd bless him. If you saw mountains, hills, seas, rivers, or deserts, you'd bless him. If you bought a new house or you bought new clothes, you'd bless him. In fact, there were some blessings. If you went to the restroom without pain, you would bless him. I'm not making it up. What was so great? We are so ingrained with the sacred and the secular, the religious, the irreligious. They blew that whole thing up. Oxygen, thank you. Blood, thank you. Thinking, thank you. Speech, thank you. Sunsets, thank you. Sunrises, thank you. Their whole day was oriented. Thank you. It's so far away from us where entitlement language and deserving language and earning and striving language infects us all. See, when you live in a world that's all God's gift... You're not as tempted by the stuff you don't have because you're continually looking at, oh my goodness, can you believe how great this is? Go if you would to the book of Acts. You guys still tracking? Okay, four, middle section, nothing, 
the right section might as well not even. <laughs> Disappointed right section. Acts chapter 17. Paul is speaking to a bunch of folks that are not, they're not uh, Christians, or they're the farthest thing from it. They're pagan philosophers. And he's making an argument that's pretty epic, and he's deconstructing their philosophy. But he says something here I just want to draw your attention to. We're going to do a jet tour through about four or five New Testament passages to make a point. Verse 24, Acts 17, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples built by human hands. The Greeks of of Paul's day believed that the gods needed our service in our temples. Verse 25, And God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Now how much of life does that exclude? Life and breath and everything else. Does that leave anything out? I don't read it that way. I mean, it's like life and breath, and in case that hasn't covered everything, and everything else. Right? So, are you in control of your lungs? Well, kind of yes, but no, really. How about, how about the, whether or not your heart pumps in the next second? Or whether your synapses fire when you're trying to form words? Or whether or not you'll wake up tomorrow morning after sleeping? I mean, we pretend to have so much control, and to some degree we have some. But the scriptures present a world of a God who made it all and said it's good. He nestled spiritual beings in it, commands them to enjoy. And what are they enjoying? Everything as a gift. Life and breath and everything else. Go to 1 Corinthians. We're going to go fast. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If I lose you, verse 31. How much of this does life, does Paul leave out? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. How much of life does that leave out? Nothing. Thank you for one very masculine voice saying nothing. Go to the book of Colossians, chapter 3. Verse 15. Now let's do verse 17. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. How much of life does that leave out? My man, where are you? (laughs) Nothing. Thank you. Go, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians 5. At least we're going in order to the right. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16. Be joyful always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances. How much of life does that leave out? Not a thing. One last one. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. I know some of you have abandoned flipping. I'm sorry. We're moving along this morning. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. The Spirit says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Is Paul real happy with whatever he's going to be talking about? Nope, they're taught by demons, he says. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Okay, So he's not stoked on whatever's being taught. Notice, 
They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. So there were some religious teachers saying you can't marry and you can't enjoy certain kinds of food. And Paul is saying that is demonic. Why? Because those who know the truth know that this is God's good world. Notice what he says. For everything God created is what? Good. Sounds like Genesis 1. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So here's what we've got. We start with the American dream. The American dream says, listen, everyone should have an equal shot. We're in. Everyone, if you work hard, good things happen when you work hard. We're in. We buy that. But that increasing levels of prosperity, that's the good life. That's why you're here. And we say, no, we, we jump off the train exactly at that point. Your life, if your life is spent accumulating, you will lose your life, right? Doesn't Jesus say that? You've got to lose to gain. You've got to die to live. If you want to be first, you've got to be last. I mean, do we believe him or do we believe Madison Avenue? This is what this is about. The Bible comes in and says, no, no, no. The world is good. It's tarnished. It's fallen. It's sinful. But the goodness has not been pushed out of it. We are spiritual beings, meaning that everything that has to do with us is a spiritual issue. And so God says, fundamentally, focus on what you have and not what you lack. The root of all temptation, whether it's monetary, whether it's an affair, whether it's anger. I mean, it's, it's literally at what we don't have instead of what we do have. Genesis 3, right? In a world full of yes, focus on the no. Book of Numbers, they're out of slavery, but man, we miss onions. You're just going, really? I'm so glad we're not like them. (laughs) And then you realize, oh my goodness, what is this whole season about? Reminding me of what I lack instead of what I have. So what the New Testament does, the whole of life is a gift. Have you ever found somebody who was felt like God owed them? Have you ever been somebody who felt like our youngest child has Down syndrome? You don't you know this. And um, I gotta watch my heart because I think he owes me. I think he owes me. Like so I have this so I debit God's account when bad things happen. Okay? So God, you owe me for this and you owe me for this and you owe me for this, because you could have prevented all of that and you didn't, so you owe me. Now, God very gently in those moments says, okay, if you're going to talk about the debits, let's talk about all the things I get credit for. Earth, (laughs) oxygen, blood, dirt, romance, life, life and breath and everything else. So the response that God invites his people to is when... Whether you eat or drink, in word or in deed, whatever you do, give thanks. And to those who say that there are parts of human life that are off limits, that are somehow, because he was talking to people that believe being physical was bad and being spiritual was good. And so Paul says, that's demonic. Everything God made was good if it's received with thanksgiving and consecrated by prayer. Now, obviously, there are boundaries to that, right? I mean, I'm not going to enjoy drugs while saying, God, thanks for this, man. This is awesome. Obviously not what Paul's talking about. 
But this worldview caused the Jews three times a day to pray 18 benedictions and just to have these blessings. So we're going to practice this morning, all right? Are you in? You're in regardless of whether or not you're in. All right, so let's practice. I'm going to throw a scenario out, and the first thing we're going to practice is saying thank you. Okay, so ready. You wake up in the morning. Because it's better than the option, other alternative. Would you agree? On most days, that's probably true. You open your eyes and can see. You swallow. You walk, forgive the commonness of this, but you walk to the restroom. Thank you. You use the restroom. You open a cupboard and have your selection of many different kinds of food. You go to the refrigerator and can pick milk and orange juice and have fresh water. What do you say? Right? You open a closet full of clothes, deciding what you're going to wear. You go to your car. 93% of the world doesn't own one. So no matter what kind it is, you open the door and say, it starts. And you say, you drive to school or work. Thank you. I cannot believe some idiot would leave their phone on. I mean, I rebuke that. It's my phone, is the point. Now, some of you are like, well, I liked you until then. No, that's my phone. Jesse, are you calling me? Okay, that's my wife. It's something she would do. Who was it? Do you know? Okay. It could have been the president. Um, You wake up, and your spouse is laying next to you. What do you say? Single people, you're waking up, and nobody is sitting next to you. What do you say? You're changing the diaper of your child. What do you say? You You go to lunch. What do you say? You get the point, right? For sunsets and sunrises, and we thank you for trees, and we thank you for songs, we thank you for art, we thank you for music, we thank you for film, we thank you for leisure time, we thank you for rest, we thank you for play, we thank you for worship, we thank you for romance, we thank you for kissing and holding hands, we thank you for food, we thank you for football, we thank you for every single part of human life. Because He is good, and He gave us this world that he said was very, very good. And he says, listen, enjoy it. I command you to enjoy it. Because that is the best way to resist temptation. It's not grinding it out. It's celebrating what you got. Because if you live in a world of thank you, guess what else you can say? And this is the harder one. I don't need it. We're going to practice We're going to practice the 42-inch plasma screen TV. I don't need it. The new iPad. I don't need it. The coals save 15% if you show up at 4 in the morning. I don't need it. Bed, bath, and beyond, 20% off for curtains and weird stuff. I don't need it. Hamler, Schumler, something. It's a plane and it's a car all at once. What do we say? I don't need it. 
the company store. Sisters, what do you say? I don't need it. Chadwick's. Justy Chadwick's. I don't need it. Bloomingdale's. Bloomingdale's. I don't need it. Target. This is going to be the hardest one. Hold on a second. Target is my happiness. Target is my joy. I say in the name of Jesus, I don't need it. I don't need it. All right, so stand up. We're going to practice saying thank you. Oh, I got a workout rebuking my heart. <laughs> All right, close your eyes. We know God does his best work when our eyes are closed. We're not done. For those of you getting, we're not done. Anyone leaving early will face the wrath of Jesus someday. Now, <laughs> now I don't know. Um, close your eyes. Father, in the name of your Son, would you give us grace to see the goodness of our lives no matter where they are. God, we all lack in some way. We all yearn and want and desire in some way. And God, many of the things presented to us are things we really don't need in the truest sense. And would you, by the power of your spirit, form us into a community that gathers together to say thank you, that celebrates. I pray for the awkward conversations we're going to have to have this week. I pray for all the craziness that this week represents. And would you help us to be thankful? And God, as an act of rebellion against our culture that is so out of control, Lord, we just say you are enough. We want you, God, to be the center of all that we have and all that we are. And so give us grace now as we practice. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mariners Church Mission Viejo Campus. For more information about Mariners, visit www.marinerschurch.org.